Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting Your On Talk Show. It is Friday, September 30th, 2011. Tonight, I decided to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to do an off-the-cuff program. I'm going to discuss the prophecy of Malachi, and I'm going to discuss several aspects of it and, and how it relates to certain things, both in the New Testament and what those things mean in relationship to certain things in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament in the order in which it was generally arranged all the way back to the Septuagint, right? And probably before that. The um, the prophecy of Malachi, it, it's agreed by every scholar that I've seen, and, um, and I, I also agree with it. Malachi was a prophet of roughly the same period of Zechariah, and, and this can be established, and, and he was also a prophet of the intertestamental period. He was the prophet of the building of the second temple at almost as much as Zechariah was. He, he was prophesying during the return to Jerusalem by the 42,000 Judahites and, and the second temple being rebuilt. That was Malachi's prophecy. And therefore, when we see um, that that'll be important in understanding Malachi chapters 4 and 5, where it talks about the return of Esau to desolate places and the rebuilding of those desolate places by the Edomites, where God says that he will throw those places down. Malachi 1.1 The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet you say, wherein have you loved us? was not Esau, Jacob's brother. Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. It is true, long before this prophecy was written, and this could be told by the... um, by the prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35, and also by general secular history and, and other sources, that the Arabs had, by this time, driven most of the Edomites out of their ancient habitats in the ancient land of Edom, which was much further south. It, it was south of the Dead Sea, and it was south of the lands of Israel and Judah. And the Arabs drove them out, and the Edomites were driven into Israel and Judah. And that, too, is a fulfillment of prophecy. So Esau's heritage was already laid waste by this time, as it says in Malachi. Now, this is a very, um, I have to call it a spiritual allegory going on here. Why would God speak to Israel? And receive an answer concerning Esau. And I think that this has, and, and other parts of this prophecy of Malachi, as we shall see, have 
every application for this very day and, and the day's future. Jacob himself purposely, as is described in the book of Genesis, took the inheritance from his brother, ostensibly because he felt that his brother did not deserve it. Esau, we saw, was a race mixer. Jacob himself would not have made, it seems, such a comment concerning Esau if he were spoken to in reference to himself, like we have here. We have God saying something. We have Yahweh saying something to Jacob. I have loved you. And, and the children of Israel, or, or, you know, it's an allegory, and, and the children of Israel are said to respond, wherein or why or how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet, saith Yahweh, I have loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Why would the Israelites answer in such a way? concerning Esau when, when the statement was directed to them. That this is, um, you, you know, the, the, the Socratic dialogue was not invented by Socrates. We find it throughout the prophets of the Bible when we find similar dialogues. Well, we don't see it as, as um, it, it's, well, I should say, as it's often not seen, it's perfectly evident to me that this is an indication that the children of Israel are more concerned with the children of Esau than they are with themselves. And this is a prophecy of that. And that, if we observe the world today, is exactly the state that we are in. All Mainstream Christians today have more care for a patch of sand in the Middle East and the fate of the Antichrist Jews than they have for their own nations. And Yahweh's telling Jacob, I have loved you. And Jacob responds, well, what about Esau? Well, God's saying that he hates Esau. And these mainstream Christians just don't see that these people that call themselves Jews really are descended from the children of Esau. Malachi opens with Israel being concerned with the Edomites, with Esau, whom Yahweh hates. Malachi closes, as we shall see, With the Israelites caring for their own ancestors and for their own descendants, which is the spirit of Elijah to come in the last days, and I'll cover that when we get to it. Malachi verse 4. Whereas Edom says, we are impoverished. Well, that's the line of the Jews. That's what they've been telling us for hundreds of years. But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, 
the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. That describes the Jews. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. Yet, you know, never before in history had the children of Esau, had the children of Edom, returned to build desolate places in Palestine. Never before the 20th century. Never before, I'll use the landmark date of 1948. Of course, we saw that they, they started migrating there in the late 1800s and in ever-increasing numbers through the 1930s and 40s. Never before has Edom returned to Palestine until that time. And that's who is there now, rebuilding the desolate places. They're masquerading as Israel. A lot of them probably sincerely believe that they are Israel, just like a lot of the white people of Europe, in their ignorance, believe that they are dumbass goyim. Did I say that? Yeah, I said that. Saved by um, the, 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 the grace of the Jews. Well, well, a lot of the Jews are probably just as deceived as most, as all of the Christians are deceived. But a lot of their rabbis indeed know who they are. There's no doubt. What's going on here in Malachi verses 4 and 5, since it never happened yet, and since Edom, the children of Esau, are rebuilding those desolate places right now and have been for 60 years, what the Christian looks forward to right now is the destruction of that Zionist imposter state. It will happen. When is another story? How is another story? But it will happen. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I, meaning God, be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith Yahweh of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And you say, Wherein or how have we despised thy name? I would say that we honor our ancestors by respecting their experience. That is their history. We should respect the history of our ancestors, and we should learn from it things that we fail to do. And we should not repeat their mistakes, things that we fail to do and by obeying their instructions, the laws that they've had and handed down to us. They made those laws for good reason. If we respect our ancestors, we would have a much easier time with ourselves and our children. We will soon see why the priests have despised the name of God here in Malachi. Verse 7. You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that you say, the table of Yahweh is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? 
Offer it now unto thy governor. He will be pleased with thee. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Of course not. Sayeth Yahweh of hosts. Offer it now unto thy governor. The secular authorities wouldn't accept um, deformed and sick sickly animals for sacrifice to their gods. Yet these people offer deformed and sickly animals as sacrifice to God. Under the Hebrew law, offerings had to be without spot or blemish. I could really see an Edomite Jew looking to save a few bucks and offer up the, the, the sick, sickly deformed sheep and, and selling the good, nice, fat one, right? Here the priests are made an example. Being more concerned with personal gain, they offer up the sick, poor, and needy. And with that, we also see that the sacrifices are an allegory. Verse 9. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been, by your means, will he regard your persons, saith Yahweh of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith Yahweh of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. This is addressed to the priests. This is a prophecy in Malachi. So it's addressed to future priests. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, or nations, saith Yahweh of hosts. But you have profaned it, in that you say, the table of Yahweh is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. You said this also, Behold, what a weariness it is. And you have snuffed at it, saith Yahweh of hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith Yahweh? But cursed be the deceiver, which has, which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifices unto Yahweh, a corrupt thing, for I am a great king, saith Yahweh of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the nations. Chapter 2 explains just why it is in chapter 1 that the priests have allowed their practices to degenerate into lip service, into going through the motions because they have to, because they've put up that they need to put up a pretense of righteousness, and yet they ignore the, the meat of the law, which tells them what they are to sacrifice and what they are not to sacrifice. They're not to sacrifice the sickly. They're not to sacrifice the lame. And, and there's symbolic reasons for that. And as we will, we will see later in Malachi, when we give the Lord his due, when we give our God his due, we 
are blessed all the more. When we cheat our God, we end up in the long run being cursed for that. Malachi chapter 2. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already, because they do not lay it to heart. By the, um, it, it's not exactly clear when this happened, but by the second century B.C., the use of the name Yahweh was forbidden by the priests and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. To me, if we use only generic titles such as Lord or God, well, aliens can then be comfortable with those titles. Because those titles are ambiguous, and they can be used to describe any Lord or God. If we say that we worship God, and the Muslims say, well, they worship God, it, it, the lines are then blurred, and the Jews say, well, we worship God, when clearly we don't all worship the same God. Because our God, the God of the Bible, who we see personified as Joshua Christ, as Jesus Christ, he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He only came for the white race. Think about that. That's why I prefer to use the name Yahweh and Yahshua, so that I can stake my claim that the God I worship is the God of Adam and the God of our white race. And if that God only came for our race, then the Jews and the Muslims can't possibly be worshiping the same God. And that's why they despise his name. And that's why the Jews seek to oppress that name. So that they don't, people don't make the connections between the Christ of the New Testament and the God of the Old. So that people lose sight of those promises. And once those promises are lost sight of, the Jew can corrupt their purposes. So because the priest despised the name of God, he says, Behold, I will <laughs> I will corrupt your seed. That means offspring. That means children. And spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast. And one shall take you away with it. In the New Testament period, there's no doubt in my mind, and, and in reading the scripture, in reading the literature, in, in reading the Gospels, in reading the history of the period, there's no doubt in my mind that the Gospel was a sharp dividing line 
between the people of God, the Israelites, the true Israelites of Judea, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, and between the interlopers, the intruders, as, we're gonna, as we are going to see here, the children of the devil. But a lot of the priests, and we see it in John's Gospel, I, I think it's in John chapter 12, where John explains that a lot of the men of Judah wanted to believe Christ, but they wouldn't profess him because they esteemed the rewards of the society more than the rewards of God. So here Yahweh tells the priests, I will corrupt your seed. Those priests, those real Judahite and Levite Levitical priests who rejected Christ, they ended up race-mixed with the Edomites. If they didn't convert to Christianity before 70 B.C., they ended up race-mixed along with Edomites in, in all of their travels. So anybody, any Jew who claims to be a Kohanim, and, and there's a whole slew of them out there with their little beanies and their little Torahs claiming to be Kohanim and claiming that they're special, well, here's the message of God to them. Behold, I will corrupt your seed. Those people are the corrupt seed coming out the other end of history. And when you look at them, it's absolutely clear. It's absolutely clear that they're a corrupt seed, they're a perverted race, they're bastards, and they're children of the devil who do the works of the devil. This is God telling us exactly what they are. All the Jews today who claim to be Kohanim, they are corrupt seed. And a lot of them sure as hell look like they have dung spread upon their faces. Verse 4. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. And there we have it. That's why... Yahweh, in the book of Malachi, is explaining that he will reject the offerings of the priests, because his covenant is with Levi. When we open up the histories of Josephus, it's very evident that when Herod took over the kingdom in 36 B.C., that he started using the priesthood as a political tool. Josephus explains this, and we have another witness a couple of hundred years later, but he's nevertheless a valid witness, in Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote an ecclesiastical history, starting with the period before Christ. Josephus explains that Herod appointed all kinds of foul and unworthy sorts to the temple priesthood. Yahweh tells us here through his prophet that he rejects their prophet, he rejects their sacrifices because his covenant is with Levi. If he's saying that, well, then now we can understand that in the subsequent period, many of those so-called priests 
were not really priests because they weren't Levites. They must have been Edomite and Canaanite intruders. That's what the Bible's telling us in very cryptic language. But that's what Christ tells us in very plain language in John chapter 8. That's what Paul tells us in very plain language in Romans chapter 9. And that's what Luke tells us. Well, Christ tells us through the the Apostle Luke and, and his testimony in Luke chapter 11. That's what Christ says through the Apostle John in the Revelation. In verses... 2-9 and 3-9, where he talks about those who claim to be Judeans and are not, but they are of the synagogue or assembly. Synagogue is also a word for assembly or assembly ground of Satan. Verse 5, Malachi 2. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave him, I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. That word fear is really awe. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did not turn many away from iniquity, and did turn many away from iniquity. He's talking about Levi, of course, and, and the tribe collectively. For the priest's lips should be keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways. But have been partial to the law, in the law. Have we not all one father? Here we have it. These people can't be Levites that he's addressing, these priests. They can't be Levites or they're defending, they're liberals defending those who are not Levites. It's got to be one or the other. The Pharisees, The word Pharisee means separatist. And I can only offer conjecture here because we don't have a lot of history. Because the word Pharisee means separatist, and because about 130 B.C., in in the period between the Seleucid's defilement of of, of the temple and about 130 B.C., when Hyrcanus goes out and captures and and subjects the cities of the Edomites and Canaanites to Judaism. In that period, Josephus tells us that the sect of the Pharisees arose. So we see that if a sect of priests arises and calls themselves separatists, That's usually in history when that happens, that's in response to a larger multicultural movement. We see that all the time in history. We see it now in all of our white nations today. We have white nationalist parties and white separatist groups 
springing up because the larger forces in society are promoting multiculturalism. So, to me, the fact that a group named the Pharisees exists at this time indicates that the forces that wanted the Judeans to amalgamate the Canaanites and the Edomites, and especially the Edomites, into the kingdom of Judea, must have existed. There must have been agitators agitating the politicians, the religious leaders, the political leaders of the time. And at this time, the political leaders were the religious leaders. The Maccabees were, the Hasmoneans were the, um, they were the high priests. And, and they assumed the position of kings after the overthrow of the Seleucids, who were the Greek rulers of, of Asia. And they managed to keep Judea an independent nation from about 150 B.C. down to the times of, of the Roman conquest of Judea, Judea around, um, if I had to guess, it was probably around 70, 72 B.C. So for about 80 years, Judea was entirely independent. And the Maccabees ruled as sovereign kings, although they were high priests. But that's the time when they folded in the Edomites and Canaanites in the surrounding cities and the sect of the Pharisees arose. So I think that the sect of the Pharisees, calling themselves separatists, probably started off right. It probably started off with good intentions. And they themselves, by the time of Christ, 200 years later, were pretty corrupt. That's my now, now. That's conjecture because we really don't have but a couple of historic clues. We really don't have a full political history of the period. But that's what I believe. Malachi two ten. Have we not all one Father? Here's the liberal, the priest. Speaking for the children of Edom, just like they did in the opening verses of Malachi, and just like they do again today. Has not one God created us? That would be Eli James's question. And I would say no. No, one God did not create us. God created a Danic man in the Genesis account. And that's it. If you're a bastard, you can't blame God for your creation. If you're created in violation of the laws of God, how could you give God the credit for your creation or the blame? God created the donkey, as Clifton likes to say, and God created the horse. But God sure as hell didn't create the mule. And if you create a mule... Don't give God the credit or the blame. It's your damn fault that you exist. Judah has dealt treacherously. 
and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Here is the original problem all over again. A lot of those claiming to be Judah and were not, they were not Judah because they were not of Zara or Pharaohs. They were of the seed of Canaan. Daniel, the prophet, 200 years before the time of Malachi, or at least 100 years before the time of Malachi, at Susanna 1, chapter 1, verse 56, we find this in the Apocrypha. And I will quote the Septuagint. Daniel, at Susanna 156, upon finding certain priests of Judah to be false, exclaims in reference to them, O thou seed of Canaan and not of Judah. That's why you won't find a book of, of, of Susanna in where it belongs in the prophecy of Daniel in the Bible. That's one reason. Jeremiah, in more cryptic language, in language not so direct. Chapter 2, verses 13, 21, 22, and 23. At verse 13, Jeremiah says, and, and this is being written about 600 B.C., For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. As I related several weeks ago, presenting my paper, Broken Cisterns, when you, water being representative in these prophecies as the Spirit of God, when you mix your race, you create a broken cistern. Because the mule doesn't hold the spirit of either the horse or the donkey. The half-breed person is a broken cistern that cannot hold the Spirit of God, which is bestowed upon the Adamic race alone. Genesis 2.7. Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I had planted the noble vine, Holy or right seed. How then art thou turned into the into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Well, that could only happen with race mixing. For though thou wash thee with nitre, I guess that's equivalent to lie, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. Balaam being the fertility gods of the race mixers. See thy way in the valley. Know that thou hast, what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. What kind of sin would turn a pleasant plant, a good race, into a strange vine? Race mixing. What kind of sin, no matter how much you wash, 
can't possibly be removed. The sin of dark skin. The sin of being a race-mixed individual. Ezekiel 16 seals the interpretation. Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Examination of Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel proves that they all wrote within 20 years of each other. They all wrote in those closing years of Judah, after the Assyrians had deported all of the rest of Israel and, and, and Judah, and according to the Assyrian inscriptions of Sennacherib, King Hezekiah was locked up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And yes, we have that in inscriptions. So all we have left are the people of Jerusalem. And that's who these prophecies are directed to. Jerusalem at the time probably held about 2 million individuals. Not all of them Israelites, as is evident from these prophecies. Malachi 2.12 Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, and, and we see that liberalism starts with the, the enlightened academics, right? Out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh will cut off the man that does what? Well, in verse 11, we saw Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Judah married somebody of another race. When we go back to the, to the Genesis account, it's very clear Judah married a Canaanite woman. The people whom Yahweh has told us to destroy. Those who do what Judah did, as we see here from Malachi 2.12, those who race mix, their children are mongrels and are cut off forever. And the sacrifices of mixed-race priests are rejected. They are cut off forever. This leads me to discuss a couple of things. Yahweh is telling us that he's rejecting the sacrifices of these priests because his covenant is with Levi. That means the priests aren't Levi. We see Yahweh state that Judah married the daughter of a strange god. Why is that brought into this conversation here in Malachi? It can only be brought into this conversation because it's related to the reason why Yahweh is rejecting the sacrifices of the priests. It's given in response to that and an explanation thereof.
this, this to me is important because it leads to several other discussions. In the Hebrew tradition, the oldest son is the family priest. We see that in Numbers chapter 312, for instance. And that is based upon an ancient tradition. We see in Numbers chapter 312 that Yahweh took the children of Israel, of Levi, as a tribe of priests in place of the firstborn son, who is traditionally the family priest. After he cut off all the firstborn sons of Egypt, so that they would have no priests. The Levitical priesthood, likewise, the high priest always descended from Aaron and to his firstborn son, and so forth and so on. And this leads to another discussion. Why was Noah called by Peter the eighth preacher of righteousness. Let me read um, 2 Peter 2.5, speaking of God. And he did not spare of the old society, but he had kept Noah, the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. Now, I know that the King James Version has Noah the eighth person, a proclaimer of righteousness, right? That's what the King James has. But if you look at that, you'll see that the word person was added to the text. And so was the comma, because there are no commas like that in Greek. The, the Greek language actually says that Noah is the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. And obviously that confused the King James translators. It doesn't. Have. There's no reason for it to confuse us now. First, we should examine why Enoch was called seventh from Adam by Jude in his short epistle. Enoch is called seventh from Adam. And then we'll understand why Noah is the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. Why would Jude call Enoch the seventh from Adam? The only viable conclusion is that Jude meant to call Enoch the seventh of the eldest sons of our race from Adam. Because the only reason, that the only way that you could examine the Genesis account and count starting from Adam and count seven and arrive at Enoch is to count Adam, Abel, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch. Now, it can't be counting Adamic men alone. That can't be Jude's intention, because the Genesis account tells us of each of these men, after they had their firstborn son, they all had sons and daughters, who were therefore unnamed. All the way down to Abraham, the only thing that's important to record in the Bible is the firstborn son. All the way down through Shem unto Abraham. That's all the Bible records. Very few times, on only a few occasions, are sons other than the firstborn named in, those, in, in that entire narrative. 
lot of people would reject this as being historical, and I must say that the only historical part of the Bible we have starts with Genesis chapter 10. However, even if we only accept this symbolically, it still bears just as much importance as if we accept it historically, which, of course, I do, although much of it's written in parables. So, the only way you can start at Adam and get a seventh by stopping at Enoch is by counting Abel, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch. All of the firstborn sons. Why do we have to count Abel since Enos descended from Seth? Well, Abel was a firstborn son. And this scripture helps to prove that. Because Seth was a replacement for Abel, as the scripture explicitly tells us. If we count Cain, Seth wasn't a replacement for Cain. And then we have to count Enoch as the eighth from Adam, perhaps. But we can't count Abel. But Seth was a replacement for Abel. So we have to count Abel, and we can't count Cain. If we don't count either, then Enoch is only the sixth from Adam. This verse puts those who deny two seed line in a quandary. So Enoch is the seventh firstborn son from Adam, if we understand that Seth was a replacement for Abel. So Seth would have to be counted as a firstborn son because the inheritance went down through him. Now we could start to understand why Noah was called the eighth proclaimer of righteousness by Peter. If we count Adam, because it doesn't say that Noah was from Adam, it just calls him the eighth, right? If we count Adam and we count all the patriarchs down to Noah, Adam, Abel, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, we come up with 10. I'm sorry, we come up with 11. But three of these men were not the eldest living of the firstborn sons. Abel was outlived by his father. Enoch was outlasted on the earth by his father. The scriptural record is very clear. And Lamech was outlived by his father. So Abel, Enoch, and Lamech, of these 11 men, were never on the earth in this life as the eldest living of the firstborn sons. Therefore, if we only count the sons that were, we have Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, I'm sorry. Yes, Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Methuselah, and Noah. 
and Noah. Is therefore in that manner very clearly the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. And Noah being the eighth of the oldest for in the firstborn line of, of, of living Adamites, and being called by Peter a proclaimer of righteousness, well well that gives us a clue as to the nature of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, because Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And as the firstborn rules in the place of his father, and he's the family priest, then that's the way we must see the Melchizedek priesthood. Today, Christ is, as according to Scripture in the Psalms and in the book of Hebrews, the Melchizedek priest. Because when he, being God, assumed the body of a man, he became, as Paul calls him, the firstborn, even though his physical birth took place later, he existed first. The firstborn among many brethren. That is the key to understanding the Melchizedek priesthood. And the firstborn line, and this is conjectural, it can't be proven, the firstborn line was carried all the way down through Shem to Abraham's brother, who left no sons. Abraham's other brother, his only son was Lot, and Lot left no legitimate sons. His sons would have bore the curse of Canaan. So the promises passed to Abraham. And Abraham is the last Melchizedek priest. Well, his brother, technically. And from there, we have the Levitical priesthood until the time of Christ. I'd like to read this real quick and make a few comments. This is Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who, Abraham returning, who met Abraham returning from the beating of the kings, and he blessed him. Abraham went and fought with the kings of Canaan, with his 300 men, and defeated them. To whom Abraham also divided the tenth of all, while first being interpreted king of righteousness, but then also king of Salem, which is king of priests. Of king of peace. Now we have no indication in the Bible that this is Abraham's brother, but I believe that it is. After the manner in which I just explained, explained, I'm sorry, why Noah was the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. And Noah's oldest son would have been a ninth. And his oldest son would have been a tenth. And on down the line until we get to this point. We're not told about Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and Paul takes advantage of that, but we are told in certain apocryphal literature, which I don't fully accept, but, but which is an indication that it was understood 
that the line of Shem was also the line of Melchizedek priests, and, and the line of Shem and his oldest son and the oldest son that followed would be the oldest son of the oldest son handed down from our race through Seth and, and, and Noah and downward. Paul takes advantage of the fact that Melchizedek is not explained in the Old Testament and makes an allegory where he says, without father, without mother of unrecorded descent, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life, but being compared to the son of Yahweh, he abides a priest in perpetuity. Now consider how great he was to whom even the patriarch Abraham had given a tent of the choice spoils. And indeed, they from the sons of Levi, receiving the priesthood, have a command to take tents from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, although having come out of the loins of Abraham. But he who himself reckons no genealogy from them received the tents from Abraham, and he blessed him having the promises. And Paul uses this analogy to show the Hebrews that there is a priesthood that transcends and is greater than the original Levitical priesthood, which I must add had nothing to do with Jews, right? So Paul is using this as a device to show them that even the Levitical priests through the loins, who were in the loins of their father Abraham, even they were subject to this higher priesthood, Now, apart from all disputing, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Paul considered Abraham to be the superior because he was the heir of the promises of God. Yet here, men who die receive tithes, but there he is bearing evidence that he lives. And, so to speak, through Abraham, Levi also, who receives tithes, has given a tenth. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met with him. So if indeed perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, since the people behind it had been ordained by law, what further need, in accordance with the order of Melchizedek, that another priest is to arise, and not to be named according to the order of Aaron? So the priesthood being changed from necessity of change of law happens also. And so we see our remote ancestors had God's law, it made what it, it certainly wasn't in the form that the Levitical law was, but we would have to change back to the original laws of God, and the Levitical law had passed, and the rituals had passed, and that's what Paul is explaining here. For he whom these things were spoken has part of a different tribe from which no one has made an offering at the altar. Indeed, it is evident that our prince, meaning Christ, has risen out of Judah, to which tribe Moses had spoken nothing concerning priests. And yet more abundantly evident it is, if according to the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has not arisen in accordance with the law or fleshly commandment, meaning the Levitical law, but in accordance with the power, your power of indissoluble life, 
For it is testified of him that you are a priest for the ages in accordance with the order of Melchizedek. Well, Christ would claim that if he was the firstborn among many brethren. He is the true Melchizedek priest. And I will leave Hebrews 7 with that, even though Paul talks about the better covenant than the old covenant that Christ represents and, and other things that are important to Christianity, because I believe I've made my point. The Melchizedek priests were the firstborn of the line of Adam. That gives us insight into why the sacrifice of Cain was rejected. Here in Malachi, and yes, I believe this all actually ties in, here in Malachi we have a parallel. We have the Edomite masquerading priests whose sacrifices are rejected. And Yahweh says his covenant was with Levi. Well, in the time of Abel and Cain, we had Cain, the interloper. He was not a son of Adam. Genesis 4.1 is a corrupt verse. Cain was the son of the serpent, as Christ attests in Luke chapter 11 and in John chapter 8. As we also see in Revelation chapter 12, circumstantially. Cain was the son of the serpent and made sacrifices to Yahweh, and he was unworthy, just like these priests in Malachi are unworthy. If the oldest born son is the family priest, as we see in Numbers chapter 3, and that's the Hebrew tradition, if the firstborn son is the family priest, why is Abel sacrificing? very clear to me, Abel is asserting his right as firstborn son. Cain really wasn't Adam's son, and Yahweh rejected his sacrifice. Abel was sacrificing, and if he was not Adam's firstborn son, he had no right to be performing a priestly function. It's that simple. It's all racial. Malachi, I believe, gives us the evidence. We need to assert that. And the circumstances of the Hebrews in the book of Numbers. And Noah's being the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, meaning that he's the eighth Melchizedek priest. Because Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So that is why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. He was not an Adamic firstborn son. He did not deserve to have his sacrifice accepted before God. He was a bastard. We see the same thing here in Malachi of the Edomite priests who were pretending to be priests 
whose sacrifices were rejected. Because God's covenant is with Levi. In the garden, God's covenant was with Adam. Cain was not reckoned as one of Adam's sons. Because he isn't and never was. Verse 13. And this you have done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, and so much that he regards not the offering anymore, or receives it with goodwill at your hand. What have they done again? Meaning the people of Judah. They repeated the accusation found in verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and married the daughter of a strange god. Here in verse 13, And this you have done again, the sin that couldn't be washed off. Verse 14, Yet you say, Why? Because Yahweh has been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom... Thou hast dealt treacherously. She is my companion and the wife of thy covenant. And this is, a, this is basically a Socratic dialogue, right? And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of the spirit. And why one? That he might seek a godly seed, a godly offspring. You mix your race, your offspring is no longer godly. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the, against the wife of his youth, that first woman of your race that you will be trothed with, as is the Hebrew custom. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, saith that he hates putting away, he hates divorce. For one covers violence with his garment, saith Yahweh of hosts, and therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you say, why have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh. Well, this is what the churches say today. They encourage race mixing. They consider it good. They tell people, that they're doing God a favor. They're taught by the Jews. They're taught by these same Edomite bastards. And he delights in them, or, in, in other words, when you say everyone that does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, which is a lie, but that's what the churches teach today, or they say, where is the God of judgment? And that, again, is what the churches say today. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant. So his messenger is also the Lord whom they seek who shall come to his temple. 
He is also the messenger of the covenant. God and his messenger are one. Whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says Yahweh of hosts. But you may abide, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages and the widow and the fatherless, in other words, against the Jews, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear me not, saith Yahweh of hosts. Christ reproached the rabbis and the Pharisees for all of those things during his ministry. Very clear, Matthew chapter 23. The language here is a little confusing. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The subject actually shifts from the messenger to the Christ, and then back to the messenger. And that's confusing language, and the King James translation really doesn't help it. But it's the messenger, meaning the prophecy. This is a prophecy of John the Baptist preparing the way before Christ. Christ is the Lord whom ye seek, who shall suddenly come to his temple, who is the messenger of the covenant. But John the Baptist is the messenger who goes before him to prepare his way. John the Baptist is the messenger who shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Verse 6, For I am Yahweh, I change not. The word of God does not change. Dispensationalism is a lie. The Old Testament covenants were made with the same people that the New Testament covenants were made with. The New Covenant is promised several times in Ezekiel the covenant that I shall make with them in that day. The new covenant is promised explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it said that it will be made with the house of Jacob, with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, meaning the families. Paul repeats that twice, once in Romans and once in Hebrews. Luke, in chapter 2 of his gospel, says, that Christ came to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. You won't find any promises in the Old Testament about salvation for non-Israelites. All the promises of salvation are for Israelites only. Therefore, Yahweh says here, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed, because our ancestors, when they forsook their God, they broke their promise. They broke their covenant. They deserve to die according to the law. But Yahweh, God, has mercy on them, and they live for the sake of his promises to the fathers.
Verse 7, even from the days of your fathers who are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them, return unto me and I will return to you, saith Yahweh of hosts. But you said, wherein or how shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. When we give God what we are obligated to do for God or to give to God, we are blessed for that. For the last hundred years, our race has been blessing the Jew, and we've been cursed for it. We've been nothing but cursed for it. We're practically strangers in our old na- in our own nations because we've been blessing the enemies of our God. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. If we turn our hearts to our God, he will settle the score with the Jew. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith Yahweh of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith Yahweh of hosts. Today, we worship the Jew, and all the nations call us the great Satan. And they're probably right. Your words have been stout against me, saith Yahweh. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God, humanism. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before Yahweh of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yeah, they that work wickedness are set up. Yeah, they that tempt God are even delivered. And today, we look at the rich men, the Jews on Wall Street, the Jews that work at Goldman Sachs, and and it seems very much as if that's the way it is. And it is. And that's for our punishment, because we worship the idols of the Jew rather than do the will of our God and love each other and build up and edify our own white race. Verse 16. Then they that feared Yahweh spoke often one to another, and Yahweh hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith Yahweh of hosts, and that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them, as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. We're told to discern between the righteous and the wicked. 
this damnable July that we shouldn't be judgmental of all these perverts running around in our society is a trick. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Well, the Jewish faggots walking around Manhattan sure as hell don't serve God. The Negro flash mobs that rape our women and destroy our cities sure as hell don't serve God. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, and all that do wickedly. Sounds like the Wall Street bankers and the Jew, the Jewish neocons in Washington to me. They shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. That's one of my favorite symbols. That's the ancient Aryan symbol of the phoenix. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. I'd like to read Obadiah 17 and 18, another prophecy left unfulfilled. That certainly will be fulfilled. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Mount Zion in, in prophecy is wherever the children of Israel are. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. At the return of Christ, when we hear the final trumpet, Malachi, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 4, where it says, Arise, Zion, and thresh, my favorite joke will be true. How many Jews can fit in the Volkswagen? All of them. Here we see. Malachi ending the same way he began, talking about the wicked, talking about the children of Edom, that they shall be ashes under the soles of their feet, of our feet. They're in Palestine right now, rebuilding the desolate places, and God will throw them down. Verse 4. Remember ye the law, remember ye the law, I'm sorry, of my servant Moses, who I commanded unto him, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments, we should keep 
the laws of God. They're encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, as Christ tells us so many places in Scripture. If we keep them and we love our brother, our white racial kinsman, then we can't break the law of God. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And the heart of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's a direct commandment and prophecy. That in the days before the return of Christ and the destruction of our enemies, the spirit of Elijah, meaning not Elijah personally, will return and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. We only find that love for our own race and for the scripture and law of God in Christian identity. That's the only place we find it today. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night. I intend to discuss my papers. Describing or explaining concisely the creation of the Jewish people and the nature of the Antichrist. I will cover my paper, The Antichrist for Dummies. Thanks again.